Hey, Matze. So you know how we're supposed to host this panel on hacker cultures for the 4S conference? Yeah, Paula, I think that's something we promised to do. Yeah, and you know how the conference was put all online because of the coronavirus? Oh, the virus. I can't take it. It's boring. I know. So, like, why don't we take the whole panel and put, put it into a podcast? Oh, I like podcasts. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. Cool. This is Hacker Culture's The Conference Podcast. This year, COVID-19 turned most conferences virtual. So to combat Zoom fatigue, we decided to try another format and turn a conference session into a podcast. This series comes to you from the 2020 Joint 4S East Conference. I'm Paula Bielski, and along with my co-host, Mase Oyala, we're talking with all sorts of researchers who study what it is to be a hacker and what hacking, programming, tinkering, and working with computers is all about. So in this session, we're talking to Morgan Ames, and she joins us from the University of California at Berkeley, where she's an assistant adjunct professor in the School of Information and interim associate director of research for the Center of Science, Technology, Medicine, and Society. The title of her session is Throwback Culture, the Role of Nostalgia in Hacker Worlds. She says the maintenance of hacker identities often involves the discussion of one of an origin story, the nostalgic rendering of the path that one took into programming and technical tinkering involving the technologies and media of hackers' childhoods. In her paper, she explores the way in which these memories are mobilized to do cultural work in contemporary technology worlds, especially among those creating computational devices and software for children. Origin stories can serve as gatekeepers within hacker circles, delimiting who is a good culture fit, so to say. It can moreover shape the design process by influencing who hackers view as their primary audience and what they think this audience will find captivating. So here's our talk with Morgan. All right, we hit 6 p.m. Back broadcasting live from Berlin, from virtual Prague, virtu- from all over the virtual place. Prague, all over the place. My name is Paula Bielski. I'm, I'm Let's take it away. Our first wonderful guest comes to us from the School of Information at UC Berkeley, CSTMS. This is the um, Center for. Uh, I think science and technology and society. I think Morgan can fi- fix it up and tell us exactly uh, what it stands for. Morgan Ames um, is going to talk to us about throwback culture, the role of nostalgia in hacker worlds. And we're super excited that you're here with us, Morgan. Thanks for joining us. And maybe, Matsud, you can take it away with our first question for Morgan. Yeah, so what's this nostalgia stuff? Why why nostalgia? Exactly. What is this? <laughs> what is nostalgia? So... Um, so I think about nostalgia as a sentimental attachment to a kind of idealized past. It's not the real past. It's this kind of imagined past. Um, and I argue it can be a potent social force. So, you know, we often think about nostalgia as sort of dismissive. You know, we think we invoke it dismissively, right? But my intent is to really engage with what can make it powerful and how it not only shapes social worlds, um, but the design of what I call charismatic technologies, So there are a couple other scholars who have looked at nostalgia. Stephanie Kuntz looks at how um, a sort of nostalgia for a typical American family has um, always been more myth than reality, but it has influenced um, social norms, even policies across the U.S. in attempts to enact it. Um, And similarly, Svetlana Boehm, 
you know, thinks about nostalgia among diasporic Russians and thinks and finds that nostalgia has a really utopian dimension. Mm. Um, so, uh, so in my own research, I've found that the maintenance of the hacker identities in the projects I've looked at often involves the discussion of what I call one's origin story. And this is the nostalgic rendering of the path that one took into programming and technical tinkering um, mm. into becoming a hacker. Um, and it involves the technologies and media of these hackers' childhoods. And um, I found that this nostalgia really seems to play an important role, even in the communities that really imagine themselves as, as really forward-looking. So hacker world certainly more broadly do. And in particular, the communities I've looked at in more detail include One Laptop or Child and the MIT Media Lab. Um, for One Laptop or Child, the nostalgia came out often in discussions of the experiences with computers that contributors and the hacker community more broadly, really fondly recounted from their own childhoods. So in the early days of OLPC, this is back 2005, 2006, I read through definitely dozens, possibly hundreds of discussions about One Laptop or Child among project contributors all across the web that really directly compared what OLPC was trying to do to Commodores, to Amigas, to Apple IIs, to other early computer si computing systems that many of these people had used in their own childhoods decades before. And in fact, the specifications of these older systems were even used to justify making OLPC's XO laptop pretty underpowered. I mean, reducing the laptop's energy usage was also a driving goal. But the justification I heard was that these old systems didn't need fancy graphics or lots of memory to be captivating. So why would the XO need them? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I totally hear you there. And I, I think also the hacker world often does think of itself as sort of future oriented. I think that's another question I wanted to ask you. The MIT Media Lab in particular has long been kind of celebrated for its role in inventing the future. Yet you focus on this nostalgic dimension of these groups. So I want to know how does that interact with this pull towards the future? Yeah. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. And I feel like this is one of the big ironies of the OLPC project and a lot of these kind of charismatic projects in open source um, and also beyond um, across the hacker world and across the tech world more generally. Um, they often paint visions of this utopian future, right? But in order to be charismatic, they really have to appeal to parts of the tech world that are familiar to those they mm. want to reach. So for One Laptop Per Child, we saw this familiarity come in in their own memories of their childhood experiences with technology. Um, another dimension of this that I found kind of interesting was that um, in American culture in particular, school is often painted as like something that's like a factory. Um, this is a myth ultimately, but it kind of lets people discount the value of public education and like really emphasize these individualist learning narratives, right? So... Um, so I talk a lot in, I have a book on OLPC that's out now, um, and I talk a lot about how charisma is ultimately conservative. It promises to quickly and painlessly transform our lives for the better. And in that, it kind of appears future-oriented, obviously, but mm -hmm. it's appealing because it amplifies existing values, existing ideologies, such as these kind of nostalgic stories of one's childhood. Um, and for One Laptop or Child, it really promoted a vision of the world where children all across the global south would have the opportunity to have the same kinds of formative experiences with computers that these adults remembered having. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I, I worry somewhat that um, this irony, you know, this future orientation, yet this this kind of undercurrent of nostalgia um, kind of obscures the conservatism of these kinds of stories, right? We hear stories of new tech creating this massive break with whatever came before. Um, Vincent Mosco calls this the end of history rhetoric, right? And this disruption, move fast and break things, however it gets encoded, history is rarely part of that discourse. Um, and as they say, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Mm, exactly. That's uh, interesting. I somehow think that if computers were more like my Omega 500, we would be better <laughs> off. But I don't know, what, can you talk a little bit of like what are the like consequences of this nostalgia? Because it's such a like a rich, uh, effective register as well. Like, so what is like, is it good or bad? Like my nostalgia is of course great, but other people's <laughs> nostalgia is maybe bad. Or like what's, what's going on here? What's yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I think we all are allured by certain forms of nostalgia. It's comfort comforting Cozy, right? it's yeah. familiar i like it um but but there are some downsides that i see in the kind of the hacker world more broadly and in these projects in particular and one is that origin stories can be kind of like gatekeepers within hacker circles they kind of delimit who is a good what they often call culture fit, right? Um, I've been collecting stories from all across the tech world beyond just kind of those who identify as hackers of people bonding over the overlaps in these um, kind of programming origin stories. So they might've like both learned to program on a Commodore or an Amiga, or if they're, if they're of a certain generation or maybe from the back pages of Scientific American or in Minecraft or through Robotics Club, right? But I hear story after story about how these allowed them to fall in love with programming and then they taught themselves how to do it. And these stories almost always neglect this whole constellation of resources that helped them along the way. Um, there's this kind of individualist story, right? This he hero narrative. And culturally, we tend to love a good hero narrative. Um, and these hero narratives, along with this kind of disdain for formal education I mentioned, is I found it all over hacker culture. And it's really kind of, you know, it's hard to avoid these sorts of, here's how I got into programming stories um, in these worlds. But the issue with them is that who tends to get into programming this way historically has been mostly men. Of course, there yeah. are always important exceptions, but by and large women and various minoritized groups that are currently really underrepresented in the tech world, so um, black and Latinx people in particular, tend to often get into computer science in college. They don't have this shared narrative, right? Um, and they often need to kind of account for themselves in hacker and tech spaces as a result. They might not be as kind of quickly accepted um, and I can say from my research and also my own personal experience as a computer scientist, in order to be accepted, they often have to find ways to kind of translate that experience into ones that might be legible within this kind of this ideological frame. Um, and, uh, you know, they change themselves to fit in, basically, rather than being able to change the culture. Mm. And I would argue this is even through in these informal or volunteer-based hacker worlds. Um, they often define themselves around shared narratives and they don't really have the institutional hierarchies that maybe a company would have. Of course, there is a lot of open source that happens in companies these days, but, um, but a lot of these more loose communities rely on charismatic leaders and these kind of these big social imaginaries um, that are shared. So, um, you know, there, I don't want to say there are other... Uh, there aren't other powerful forces that contribute to discrimination in the tech world. There's mm. you know, structural sexism or racism, lots of big ones. Um, but I do argue that the role these kinds of nostalgized stories play 
tends to be under-examined. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it sounds a little bit like the kind of, I guess, the privilege questions are somehow close. You didn't mention that, um, I guess. Yeah, but, you go. You want to ask? You ask. No, I just wonder, like, uh, like uh, this, uh, like, w- where does this uh, nostalgia go? Like, does it end up in the artifacts as well, or in the software thing, or is it just like a cultural thing, or you know, does it somehow materialize, or, or you know, or yeah, is it just like it a cultural thing? How does it get built thing? into its devices and software these groups build as well? Yeah, that's I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I certainly for one laptop per child, this nostalgia does shape the design process. It influences who hackers and other tech workers more generally view as their primary audience and what they think this audience will find captivating. And they do this ultimately in a way that kind of recreates and reinforces the current culture, including its current biases. Um, so if they're making stuff for kids, It's implicitly the same kinds of kids that they imagine that they were, right? Mm. Um, this is kind of this becomes the unmarked user to borrow an idea from mm. Stuart Hall. Um, so you know, often again, there are exceptions, but this is often male, generally white, generally middle class, um, and there are pretty material consequences for this. So, in one laptop per child, uh, for example, the fact that that XO laptop was so underpowered ended up creating huge problems in use. A lot mm. of kids today didn't really care much about those older systems the machine was based on. They really wanted a computer that could take advantage of the media-rich web, and the XO couldn't really deliver there. Um, and I talk a lot about the consequences um, all throughout my book. I can go into a lot of that. But in short, a lot of them just weren't that interested in it. Um, And even more importantly, I would say uh, OLPC's laptop was kind of implicitly designed for a particular kind of um, technically precocious boy that many of the contributors imagine themselves as or imagine their childhoods as. And again, it's not that women were completely absent from the process, um, but there were only a few. And from what I heard and saw, they kind of had to fit into this broader culture, including its nostalgia. So, um, so of course, this isn't that like the laptop will go out there in the world and will only be used like kids like them. Um, that's technologically d- determinist, and certainly we know the pitfalls of that, and it doesn't match what I saw. Um, but the design did signal to certain kids, again, to kind of borrow an idea from Stuart Hall, it kind of, it hailed kids who kind of could identify with those narratives, right? And the kinds of stories that get told around the machine, around that design, matter even more. Um, mm. Kids definitely notice that stuff, and were definitely influenced by it. Mm. Yeah, um, I... No, yeah, I just wanted like even to jump in because I find it so interesting this moment where in I mean, myself I study software engineers and you see the, the sort of nos- not the nostalgia building but these connections that happen between them and their machine that they're creating their whatever it is that they're creating and they have there is an I read a bit about intimacy and this sort of this intimacy this connection that has a lot to do with nostalgia and has a lot to do with coziness and creativity and all these kinds of things that as an engineer you you value and you cherish yet of course there's the downside of that that it creates it keeps creating sometimes shitty objects or things that don't actually work and and that's so difficult and I'm, I'm curious how like how to unpack that is really tough and I yeah I, I I'm sure you share the same thing it's just got me thinking about my own field 
Absolutely. You know, I, I think a lot about, um, you know, I mean, tech worlds and, and hackers often paint themselves as as like the consummate rational actor, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so much of these worlds is tied up with, with emotion and affect. Um, and I really love certainly shining a light on that, right? Um, nostalgia is part of it. That's certainly not everything here. Um, nostalgic design is is something that we, I think, have to grapple with. But um, but yeah, I really love kind of thinking about these these broader broader affects as well. Mm. Great, great, wonderful. Um, yeah, Morgan, we have a few more minutes. Is there something that you kind of are doing next with this project or is there something that you'd like to like conclude with or uh... of course we should all read your book yeah I exactly guess. the yeah <laughs> charisma but what, what else are you working on yeah yeah sure so so i'm kind of broadening out some of the ideas that i explored in the charisma machine to the tech world more broadly so that was really focused on that particular project and um I want to really see how particular ideas of childhood affect the tech world more broadly. And I'm sure it's going to be a multitude of different effects, right? There's a lot of different pulls in different directions. But I do think that, you know, things like nostalgic desi design, like charisma, are um, kind of captivating forces across tech design in general, right? Um, and that a lot of it gets, you know, it becomes ideological. It becomes like the water that, uh, that the tech world drink or the, you know, the tech world swims in. It's, it's something that's really taken for granted. So I'm hoping that shining a light on it can help also shine a light on the ways that, um, you know, the, this charisma and these nostalgic ideas are kind of limiting mm -hmm. and, um, limiting who participates, limiting, who uses these devices, um, limiting the kind of the, the creative imagination of the tech world more broadly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Really great. Yeah, that's and good. I everyone like should read the Charisma Machine, of course, required reading. Um, I have my copy under my pillow. <laughs> no, but really, uh, I really appreciate your book. I really love um, deep dive sort of ethnographic projects that are also tech and socially intertwined. And I, I really like it a lot. Um, so I highly recommend it. And thank you so much, Morgan. We're just wrapping up at 15 minutes. So that was wonderful. Um, yeah. And what, that's what we should do. Applause. Large applause. Yeah. yeah. This podcast series was hosted by Paula Bielski and Matze Oyala. It was produced by Heights Beats and Hot Milk Productions with funding from St. Gallen University. Thank you to all the panelists and audience members of the Hacker Cultures panel at the 4S and East 2020 conference on the theme of locating and timing matters, significance and agency of science and technology studies in emerging worlds.